Have you ever learned a life lesson from a film or a movie character? Well, my guest today is more than just a film lover. Movies are her life. Let's meet her on an all-new episode of Up Next. Hi, everyone. It's John Contratti, and it's another episode of Up Next. Today, my guest is a film reporter, producer, writer. We all know her as one of the hosts of Turner Classic Movies. She's also the author of a new book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. Welcome, Alicia Malone. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thank you for having me on your show. Oh, I'm glad that you're here. So we just got out of Oscar season. Were you happy with the results of the winners? Were those some of the films that you enjoyed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was very excited that Jane Campion won the Best Director Oscar. The Power of the Dog was my favorite film from last year. I was was hoping that that would win Best Picture, but Coda, certainly a worthy winner, especially for what it did to allow deaf actors to take front and center, center stage, something that we don't often see. But it was really a proud moment for me being, even though Jane Campion's from New Zealand, She's close enough to Australia that we can claim her and she studied film in Australia. So there was a a bit of a proud moment that not only did we have a female director win, but she's also from my part of the world. Also quite rare to have two female directors win Best Director in a row. So that makes me happy. Back to back, correct. So you grew up in Australia. What part? I grew up in Canberra, Australia, which is the capital of Australia, but not many people know that i think they believe it's sydney because sydney and melbourne get most of the attention when it comes to australia but i grew up in canberra and i lived there till i was 18 and then i moved over to sydney so at what age did you discover movies i'm sure at a very young age yeah very young age i can't even pinpoint when as i write in my book my very first memory ever is being in a a movie theater at about three years old watching the never-ending story which was quite traumatic because of the horse dying but uh, movies were just always part of my life my family loves movies and so they're always on and my dad especially was always recording the classic films from television i think i was reading where he would record them on like vhs tapes for you I mean, I'm a little older than you. I love movies so much as well. Um, growing up, I would use my little cassette tape and I would just record the audio of whole movies. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I had a, I had a whole library. I mean, you would look in and there would be the whole movie, The Parent Trap, just the audio. And you just listen to the audio. Over and over again. <laughs> I love that. And, I love that. And, yeah, then, and then VHS tapes came out and then I was able to you know, record yes. them. And I didn't do my audio as much as I used to. Um, in your book, which we're going to get to more later, but you're talking about the movie National Velvet mm-hmm. and you wanted to get a horse. Mm-hmm. And did you get, did you take riding lessons? I did. So National Velvet really stuck in my mind because I, I had this love of horses. I don't know exactly how or when it began. Again, that's another thing I felt like I was born with just loving the idea of riding horses. And it accelerated after I saw National Velvet and I wanted to be like Velvet Brown, played by Elizabeth Taylor. And I wanted to have that experience of galloping on a horse around across the field. As I write about in my book, I was so small, I was so shy that I loved the idea of being strong and powerful on this large animal. So I, I was 
determined to get a horse and I would get the magazines back in the day that would advertise all the horses for sale. And at one point I saw an ad for this stable, I think it was in Sydney, that had Arabian horses, which of course were very expensive. And I was trying to do the math with how many chores I would need to do. I had a picked an outline of a horse and I was trying to like color in the bits of the horse that I would <laughs> I was able to to pay by doing you know the mowing which was not much money that you know my parents would give me for doing these kind of chores um but I called up the stable and I was talking to them and we went back and forth and I wrote letters to them and and they thought I was quite serious about buying a horse and I could not afford an Arabian horse. They were thousands of dollars. And my mom eventually had to step in and say, no, she's actually seven years old and she has $5 to her name and uh, she cannot afford a you know thousand dollar horse. And so in the end, my mom relented and, and organized uh, riding lessons for me and, and I was hooked and I rode until I moved up to Sydney at 18 and, and I still ride on and off, but I used to compete in dressage and jumping and do the whole thing. Any other children's movies aside from uh, Never Ending Story and National Velvet that you know really got to you as a kid? Yeah, well, National Velvet began a love of seeing girls on film, which is why I call my book Girls on Film, as well as uh, being a nod to the Duran Duran song and all of the implications with that. But um, from there, I, I, I loved uh, The Secret Garden, um, with Margaret O'Brien and I loved um, Parent Trap with Hayley Mills and any, oh, especially Wizard of Oz uh, with Judy Garland. It was any film that involved a young girl going on a big adventure was something that I was drawn to. And then, of course, I was drawn to a lot of the, sort of the more adult films like Gentlemen Fur Blondes and Singing in the Rain, those kind of classic movies. But as far as kids' films, it was a lot of it was classic films and it was those films that had these girls at the center. When did you come to the United States? I came um, 2010 uh, was when I moved over. I had visited a few times before that, but um, 2010, the end, it was around Christmas time. That's when I decided to make the move. I was 29 at the time and uh, moved over with you know, no money to my name and no contacts, didn't know anyone over here. But I just had that idea from a young age of going to Hollywood. And so it was really about being where all the movies happened and being around Hollywood history that appealed to me. Any aspirations to be an actress in Hollywood or was it the other end? No, I had aspirations to be a director when I was young and I was watching films and I was learning about what a director did. Uh, but I didn't believe that I could do it because all the examples I saw, apart from Gillian Armstrong and Jane Campion, were of these men directing films. And plus, Jane Campion and Gillian Armstrong are very strong personalities. And, and I just, being shy, I didn't think I could do that. And now I just don't think I have that kind of visual brain to be a director. But I never had an aspiration to be an actress and not even really to be on camera. I loved watching the classic film introductions Bill Collins did in Australia for the classic films, but I never thought of that as a job. Um, an actress, I just thought, gosh, I'd be so embarrassed because, again, I'm still quite shy and introverted, as many of us movie lovers are, so I couldn't imagine myself in the spotlight like that. So what was your first job when you came 
to the United States? Well, interestingly, because I came over on a journalist visa, I had already been working in television in Australia, and I had done some some hosting for a couple of years uh, for a, a movie cable network in Australia. So I had done producing, editing, and uh, being on camera for for about six or no, for about ten years before I moved to America. But I had a journalist visa, and that only allowed me to work in television. So I couldn't get I couldn't get a job as a waitress if I wanted to, or I work in a bar. I literally just had to work in television. So although that was a lot of pressure, it also made me more motivated to make it happen because I had to pay the rent. That's right. <laughs> and so luckily, because I had built up 10 years worth of work in Australia, I was able to let all the contacts know in Australian television that I was now in LA. And if they needed someone to cover a film event, a, a premiere, a red carpet, an award show, or you know the press junkets where you interview stars about their movies, that I was available. So I started just getting piecemeal jobs when their regular people weren't available, and then eventually when the reporter who was working for my old cable network in Australia decided to move back to Australia. I was able to slip into her position and be their official correspondent. So I worked for Australian television for many years before I first got my chance to work for American companies, and that required, you know, a different visa. And so eventually, I got the green card. Uh, when did you start TCM, and how did you get that job? Yeah, that was a, literally my dream job. Uh, I know it is many people's dream job, but when I moved to America. I, had, I knew of TCM and I knew of Robert Osborne, but it didn't show in Australia. So once I moved over and I didn't know anyone and I was homesick, I would turn on TCM and there would be the familiar films that I fell in love with as a child. And that made me feel less homesick. So I uh, was watching TCM and I would see Robert Osborne and I would see Ben Mankiewicz. And so I pulled out my notebook one day and put that down as a dream job of working with TCM. And in brackets, I wrote hopefully like as a host, but I didn't know whether I could do that. But I, I started just thinking with that in mind. So every job that I took, I had that in mind. And of course it fit in with what I naturally loved and the experience that I, I had anyway in television. So I, I was working for many years in a variety of freelance jobs, working for Fandango, covering all the press junkets for them, the American movie ticket site. Um, I was also doing uh, like expert commentary for them too. So they mm -hmm. would send me out to various news outlets and I would report on their latest findings, you know, box office sales for this or people are buying tickets to that. And I would cover a lot of press junkets again for Australia and for other outlets. And uh, but I was doing stuff on the side that I loved doing. I also started working on a YouTube channel for AMC theaters and that show was very popular. And I started doing a podcast with a friend, Scott Mance. We both love classic movies. So we thought let's do a podcast where we could talk about directors and, and a body of work. So it was called Profiles. And every week we would do a profile on a different director. And we always love to talk about classic films. And one day the head of that podcast studio, Kevin Undergaro, his name is, pulled me aside and, and he said, what is your dream job, Alicia? And I said, uh, I really wanna work with TCM. <laughs> and he said, well, actually, I know the head of talent at TCM, if you would like me to put you in touch. And I said, not yet. 
not yet. I'm not ready yet. Give me another year and I'll come back to you. I just wanted to work on myself a bit more and my skills. So that was 2015. A year later, early 2016, I said to him, I think I'm ready. Here's a showreel of all the times I've talked about classic films. Um, he put me in touch with the head of talent at TCM at the time named Darcy. She's not with us anymore, but she was there from the very beginning of TCM. Uh, she said, ah, I happen to be in Los Angeles getting ready for the Classic Film Festival. If you would like to meet up for coffee. We did, we got along really well, and it ended up being perfect timing because she was looking for hosts for Filmstruck, which was the streaming service that TCM had with Criterion Channel. And it hadn't been announced yet, but they were starting their planning to look for hosts. And so because I talked about foreign films in addition to classic films, she thought I might be a good choice. I did an audition. And then at the 2016 TCM Film Festival, I did a couple of Q and A's, which I think was kind of part of my audition, but it was during mm -hmm. that film festival that uh, Scott McGee and Sean Cameron, who both worked at TCM, was starting to work on Filmstruck. They, they said, uh, you've got the job on Filmstruck as a host. And I had always been very vocal about my dream to work on TCM. So I was so happy to work on Filmstruck and I'm so proud of everything that small team was able to do within the two years that it was alive for. And throughout that time, I kept saying like, it's still my dream to work at TCM. And so towards, it was the end of 2017 that I got the opportunity to do an audition for TCM. And I was really nervous, even though I knew the team and I'd been working with them for two years at that point, uh, still just being on the TCM set to do the audition. They gave me one of Robert Osborne's old scripts to do as an audition piece. Just seeing his name at the top of the script, I was very intimidated. And at the start of 2018, they told me, you, you've got the job. So I started on TCM March 2018, which means it's been four years. It goes by quickly. So I mean, quickly. you're a big part of you're a big part of the household on Sunday. We always have to see him on, <laughs> on you. Sundays. You're talking about in your podcast, you're talking about classic films. What makes a movie, a film, classic? Yes, it's the age-old question. Uh, I used to always define it by the year. So I used to be like, well, it's pre-1980. And I think that's still a way that you can do it. But and now it's probably, what, 1990s, because it's been that long. <laughs> um, the films that we grew up with being new films are now classic. But to me, I think it's it's more than that. And it's also more indefinable than that. I think it's... Um, it's about the storyline and the characters and it's speaking to a timelessness. The thing that I love about a lot of the movies that we play on TCM is that they still work today. Sometimes they feel very relevant to today, even though they were written many, many years ago. Uh, the story is still compelling. The characters still suck you in. So I think it, to me personally, it has to do with a timeless quality, but I know that people define it in many different ways. How do you define it? I was going to say, because I, I recently interviewed an actress, Joyce Boulefant, who, you know, t television for years, and she was in the movie Airplane. She was one of the mm. stars in the movie Airplane. So people call Airplane a classic film. But mm -hmm. sometimes I think, is it a classic pop culture film? Or can there be different categories for classic? I know. Maybe that's the case, because also you, people, you equate classic with a certain level of quality as well. And uh, not that Airplane's not a hilarious film but it's hard to equate say airplane with citizen kane it's just two different exactly. things 
And that's one of the gripes that I guess you could also have about award shows and Oscars that the pit and pitting two very different films against each other. It's such a subjective art that it can be hard to make a definitive list of the best of anything because everyone's going to have their own opinion. So, yeah. Um, yeah, to me, it's the timeless quality. So in that case, I would say the airplane is a classic because it still makes people laugh today. <laughs> it still does the job that it was intended to do. Before we get into your book, uh, do you get to choose some of the movies for TCM? Say, I would like to introduce this film. We get to have input, which is we feel very grateful for. So obviously the programming team led by Charles Tavish, he's been at TCM since the very beginning. I think he is TCM because he's the one that drives the entire programming on the channel and always has. Uh, so he always and his team come up with such fantastic themes. But we always get a chance, particularly each year, we get a chance to submit various ideas for the following year that then are pitched to the programming team and they decide which ones they want to go with and which ones they don't want to go with. Also, once we get the broad assignments for the year ahead, each of us hosts are given the opportunity to put up our hands if a particular theme speaks to us. Uh, sometimes they're just assigned to us and we just try to make the best of them, even if we're not personally in love with that theme. You know, we always want to do a good job for people who are interested. And we can also put up our hands individually. And I can always approach Charlie and say, I think we should include this when we're talking about this theme. Or um, sometimes I say, you know, I've introduced this particular film so many times. Like maybe there's another film that Dave has introduced many times and we could swap just to keep things fresh. Uh, it's always the the tricky thing. And, and a lot of it, of course, comes down to licensing and rights and things that I don't understand. <laughs> All of those deals that happen in other rooms that I'm not involved in. So you have a new book. It's your third book. You the books were Backwards in, and in Heels, right? Mm -hmm. And The Female Gaze. This one is called Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. Can you tell us what it's about? Yes, I, I see this as kind of a a loose trilogy. So backwards and in heels, I wanted to look at the history of women in Hollywood. The female gaze came about because people were asking me, well, what are your favorite films directed by women? So that's more analysis. Um, and then this one is trying to combine film history and analysis with a personal story, because then I keep getting asked, well, how did you join TCM? Why do you love classic films? And I was questioning those things myself, particularly as we started in the pandemic and I noted which films I was drawn to for comfort. And then I thought, why does that film give me comfort? And what is it, what is it that I'm seeking from classic films? And why do I prefer them to modern day films often? Um, and so I was trying to sort of figure out some answers, write my story and challenge myself to be more personal and open with the book. And I always like to write in a very accessible way. You know, my um, ideal, ideal outcome is to encourage people who don't necessarily watch classic films to, to want to get involved and get started. Uh, so I always like to come at it from a very accessible place and talk about films that you can easily see and easily find rather than the more obscure titles. So that, that was my idea of writing the book. And, and in writing the whole thing, then I realized I don't look at classic films for answers like I believed. I look at them because they prod more questions and they prod me to have conversations and they prod me to do more research, read more books and, and find out more about the world and the history, history of the world, history of politics and sociology. And so all of that is why I think I love classic films. 
You said you could love and hate a movie at the same time. Yes. What do you mean by I that? I can. Well, I think as I've grown older, I've been able to do that more. When I was young, I really wanted to be able to put films into nice, neat boxes. But of course, like many art forms, things have changed over the years since the years that that film was made. And there's certain things that we watch through our modern day eyes that we cannot excuse and we cannot um, fathom that was that was part of everyday society. So I think I, I'm, I'm never one that wants to completely erase uh, films from history because I think they can always teach us something, if, even if it's a, a lesson that we've hopefully moved on from. But um, nowadays I can I'm getting better at looking at a film and saying, okay, I appreciate how it does this, but this is problematic, not completely erasing it, but also not completely excusing it at the same time. Right. I always find fascinating about films. I always find it interesting when they tell us who was um, offered the role, but turned it down. So then yes. I start thinking, what would it have been like? Yeah. You know? I know. I like that too. Yeah. I just interviewed Lucy Arnaz and I asked her the question, has anything you've ever turned down and you regretted poltergeist oh my gosh yeah i thought that was really interesting i remember then I, then I played in my head when i was young and yeah i can imagine her yeah it would have been a very different thing but i think it it, it could have worked you, as well yeah i mean we see joe beth williams but then you, you know you just start mm -hmm. putting other people into it mm -hmm. so well it was great to see, have you on today thank you so much i'm so glad we could do it and we're going to continue to watch Alicia on TCM and go out and buy her book, Girls on Film, Lessons from a Life of Watching Women in Movies. Get it on Amazon and I guess your favorite bookstore. Yes. 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 Go, yes. Go, go to your favorite independent bookstore and, and order it through them. So I'm John Contratti and you've been listening to another episode of Up Next.